The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to keep marching through this, this great book here that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to help them see that no matter the issue, and this is what we're really seeing as well, that no matter the issue we're facing, no matter what we need to navigate, no matter what we're walking into or what we're walking through, or even what we're wondering about, what we're seeing is that the Apostle Paul keeps bringing us back to Jesus. Keeps showing us how we live in light of Jesus, how we live in light of Jesus' cross, and how we live in light of his resurrection. And as we begin chapter 8, we're going to see a a new theme today. If you've been with us the whole time, um, and if you haven't, I'll just catch you up real quick. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul is laying out the difference for the Corinthians between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the cross, the the way of the cross in the eyes of the people. And then he goes in chapter 3 and talks about division in the church. And chapter 4, he talks about more division in the church and how they need to dwell in unity together. And then in chapter 5, he begins to talk about immorality that's happening in the church amongst themselves how they need to handle that. And in chapter 6, he talks about more division when they're suing each other. And then in chapter 7, he begins to talk about marriage and how we need to live in the ways that in the marriage bed. And then in chapter 8, now we begin this new theme for 8, 9, and 10 about idolatry and how there is meat being offered to idols in these pagan temples. And there are really two groups now in Corinth. The one group of Christians is saying, we can eat this meat. It's no problem. The other group of Christians is saying, I got a big problem with this. I this is really hurtful to me. I don't, I don't know how to operate this way. And now Paul is going to speak to them and how we address idolatry. And really what we're going to see, and I think what Paul is trying to establish for, for them and for us today, is that the overarching principle for how you and I relate to each other as Christians, how we ought to live is in the way of love. In the way of love. And as we read these words from the Apostle Paul, they come to us again in the authority of the risen Lord Jesus. And so let's stand in honor of of Christ himself and hear from him by the power of the Spirit, beginning in verse 1. And the Spirit says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things exist and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now would you help us to hear your word by the power of your spirit, and that Jesus would be made much of among us, and that we would live as a church community, as those who have been raised with Christ, that we would live as disciples of Christ together in the way of love. So now, Jesus, would you be exalted among us, and will we live as though you are Lord of all? And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. So you can see how what's happening in Corinth is the question over eating meat offered to idols. It's plain. Look, I mean, verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me again. Now, concerning the food offered to idols, I wonder what this passage is about. That, that's clear. Food offered to idols. And now what they're really saying is, what do we do? You can see that Paul is addressing a question they had for him because he quotes them multiple times. You can see in verse 1, we know that, quote, all of us possess this knowledge and this, quote, knowledge. And then he quotes them again down in verse 4. So he's, he's going off of something they have said to him or at least some phrases that are occurring in Corinth. Now, what's happening in this passage is a totally foreign concept to most of us. Totally foreign. There are not a lot of temples and sacrifices in real idolatry real paganism happening in, in our day. Now, I know there are lots of heart idols and a materialism and money and TVs and food. These, these things can be heart idols that we crave, but we're in danger that when everything's an idol, nothing's an idol. That we're, we, we can lose the concept of real hardcore idolatry that was happening in Corinth. There's, these scenes are not common in the Bible. But so as we hear this passage, we've got to think, how in the world is what's happening in this Greco-Roman city in the first century, how is that applying to a Bible Belt city today in the 21st century? There's lots that applies. And really, this passage really began to take on new light for me when uh, it wasn't until I was in Thailand and walked into a real Buddhist temple and saw people offering sacrifices before gold statues, people lighting incense before gold statues for their dead relatives, People sitting in meditation, trying to empty their minds and chant to get connected to a sense of this kind of nirvana and, and seeing little kids bow before gold statues. So for Christians all around the world, we have to kind of un-Americanize ourselves for a second and realize this passage takes on a lot of life for Christians all around the world, especially for Christians in, in Asia, where there is polytheistic societies, uh, Haiti. Things like voodoo. I mean, so we have these kinds of Christians that struggle in these contexts all around the world, and they feel the relevance for this passage. What's happening in Corinth is that an animal would be sacrificed at a temple to this idol, and the priest of that pagan temple would receive some of that meat for himself, and he could choose to eat it or not. If he got full, he could send it away, and they would take that meat and all the rest. That would just be wasted. They're not going to waste it. Instead, they're going to prepare it, and they're going to serve it in a dining room at the temple. And then if there was a lot of food left over that from all the day sacrifices, a lot of that meat would then go to the marketplace. So this is a pervasive thing in Corinth. You go to the meat market, you're going to go to Whole Foods, you're going to go to H-E-B, get some stuff. Almost 100% of that meat would have all gone through the channels of a pagan temple. You were invited to a party for a coworker. It was almost likely going to be held at that pagan temple because those also served as the restaurants for the day. 
This was a massive issue. Parties and celebrations and socializing all happened in these areas. And so now you have these group of believers, the dilemma's coming up going, is it okay to eat this meat or not? This is quoted four times. You can see it. Verse 1, food offered to idols. Verse 4, food offered to idols. Verse 7, food offered to idols. Verse 10, food offered to idols. So what's happening is one group of Christians in Corinth says, it's no big deal. Idols are nothing. It's just meat. That statue didn't destroy the meat. It's fine. We have liberty to eat it. And they're right. But then there's another group of Christians in Corinth, and they're struggling to conceive that it's really okay. It's becoming a stumbling block to them. It's inciting them and encouraging them. A word that we use really to talk about and encourage one another towards Christ, now it is encouraging them towards idolatry. And they're having a real problem with this meat. And Paul says they're right too. So here's one of the passages where we see that, choice, that the choices we Christians can make, that we're free to make, free to do, free to eat that meat, have the ability to wound and hinder and stumble another Christian. And here's what's probably happening. The group that says it's okay, they know the truth about idols. exactly what Paul says. We know, verse 4, an idol has no real existence. We know that's true. So a group of guys going down, they're going to have their community group today, their little DNA group, accountability time, and they tell one brother, hey, we decided we're going to meet in the dining room down by Zeus's temple. They're having a discount sale on the filet today, so just let's go there. Everyone's like, man, that's a great idea. Let's go. Well, one brother tells them, guys, I, I used to worship Zeus, and I, I didn't share that with you. I'm, I'm embarrassed about it, but I, I just can't, I can't go there. If I eat that meat, it's going to feel like, what does Paul say exactly towards the end? And verse 9 and 10, it's, it's going to be like I really ate meat that was offered to an idol. And I, I, I can't do it. And so those brothers, what are they going to do? What should the Corinthian church do? Paul's going to tell them exactly what they should do. But when I think about our church and our day and our time, we don't face issues like this. And I think one of the ways, one of the reasons why a church like ours and a lot of churches in our area, why we don't face issues like this today is simply because our church is not very diverse. We're all pretty much from the same background. And when I think about our church in general across the board, there's maybe we're a majority, probably 90% white, and we have um, a few Hispanics, and we have a few uh, different Asian ethnicities present as well. But most of us, we're all pretty much the same. So we don't have to face really complicated cultural issues like this. But the more diverse we become and the more people we reach, the more complicated Christianity gets and the more gloriously sacrificial it becomes. This is why this was a big deal to them. Now, you think about Houston. If you're familiar with Houston in our area, you have three belts, right? You have 610, and you have Beltway 8, and now you have the Grand Parkway, and that's coming right through Houston. Come right through Tomball. Tomball's going to change. We're going to get more diverse, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. You go down to the Y on 249, down there by the Beltway, in the locker room, you might be one of the few people speaking English in that locker room. Houston's the most diverse city in America. It's going to be heading our way. And we're going to feel more of these issues of how do we navigate, how do we care for these people in the way of Christ, these new believers. When you reach a Muslim, they come to Christ. 
there will be issues like 1 Corinthians 8. You're going to have to navigate. And I remember when one of my Buddhist friends got saved, came to Jesus. Jesus saved her. New issues that she had to walk through that I had never even thought of before. The first was a funeral of a relative. A funeral for, in my family would be, no, it wouldn't be that bizarre. We would go, we'd say some nice things, put the body in the ground, and then go have some potato salad. It'd, it'd be done. But for her, it was a lot different. They say things to the dead. Maybe they invite a monk and they offer sacrifices to the monk as a way to make merit for this person. They would light incense as a way to venerate and almost kind of worship them and try to communicate with them. And so for her as a new believer, she knew this is, this is really bothering me. This is a big problem. And I, I don't know if I can go there. I don't, now, you could say, hey, it's just incense from like Hobby Lobby. Just light it and be done with it. Or you realize this is really wounding her. And you encourage her, don't light it. Don't do anything that you can't do in good conscience. And when you begin to evangelize people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, and religions, we will have to navigate these issues. Imagine that two women at Redeemer, okay? Imagine two women at Redeemer are evangelizing their Zen Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist neighbor. She's really into spirituality, really into chakra beads. And that may all sound like really bizarre hocus pocus stuff to you, but uh, these things are everywhere, and people believe them. And a new chakra shop just opened in Tomball on Main Street. And so this is in our community. We're going to reach these people, and we ought to, with the love of Christ. So imagine this lady who's into the beads, who's into spirituality, who's into Eastern meditation. Jesus saves her, and she comes to Christ. She gets saved, and she's born again. And then these ladies are discipling her and loving her and teaching her the ways of Christ. And then one day... One of the ladies, they get together and they say, guys, you've got to come to my new yoga gym. It is amazing. You've got to come. Let's have our DNA group there today. And to them, to the two other ladies, they know yoga is just a workout for them. It's nothing. It's great for stretching and weird stretching and flexibility and core work. It's a great workout for them. But to the new believer, we'll call her Tanya, but to Tanya... It reminds her of her past. It reminds her of her Eastern meditation. It reminds her of trying to empty her mind. And so for her, like, this is a big struggle. And she, she tells them, guys, I, I can't go just because of my past. So now these two ladies are faced with a situation. They can either say, oh, come on, Tanya. Just, you'll be fine. You'll get past it. Uh, we'll be there with you. It'll be okay. Which sounds spiritual. Or they could say, oh, we're so sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. I'm, I should have been more sensitive. We'll, we'll go somewhere else. One is the way of love and one is not. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. The Christians in Corinth, they know the right stuff. They know the right truth, but they're applying it in the wrong way. When it comes to living together in the way of Christ, we need more than knowledge. We need more than knowledge than how to live together. Not less, but we need love. Biblical thinking and right doctrine are massively important. They can never be undersold, but we are constantly in danger of actually not loving one another. And if we don't have love, it's meaningless. It's exactly what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. He says, if I am the greatest missionary in the whole world and I even give up my body to be burned and I don't have love, it's nothing. Look at verse 1. Here's what, this is exactly what Paul's telling them. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know. So here's just the great propositional statement. We know all of us possess knowledge. What knowledge? It's the knowledge in verse 4. 
An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. Got it. Boom. You know the truth. But look at what he says. Go back to verse 1. Look what this knowledge is in danger of. This knowledge, so that idols are nothing, there's no God but one. This knowledge is, is puffing you up. But love builds up. Idols are nothing. We know that. When sitting beneath the statue of Zeus, there is no connection to a god named Zeus in some other realm in that statue. It's nothing. Just wood. It's it. It's nothing else. There is no other god but God. So they're using that theological truth, and they're actually harming others with it. As 1 Thessalonians says, to be patient with the weak, to help the weak. They're not doing that. They're just railroading over them. And it's telling them, come on, just get over it. It'll be fine. Theologically true, there's no God but God alone. But when truth is severed from the root of God's love, truth can become hurtful. And truth can become dangerous. When it comes to how we relate to one another, love is more important than knowledge. And even saying that, like part of my Pharisee skin just gets a little uncomfortable. When it comes to how we relate to one another, love is more important than knowledge. Knowledge isn't irrelevant. Doctrine isn't irrelevant. And doctrinal truth never gets neutered for the sake of just getting along. But what we're seeing in this passage is that when we care and relate to one another, it's based off of love, not just facts. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 1. This knowledge puffs up. They're getting puffed. And you can see it's for them. It's becoming something just for them. It's not serving. Because what does Paul say next? Love builds up. This knowledge puffs up. But let me tell you something better. Love builds up. Our goal is to build each other up in Christ, to encourage one another. And look what he says at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, so they think, we've got it all figured out. We know the truth. We know how it plays out. We know how it works out. We're, we're good. Paul says, if you imagine you know something, he does not know as he ought to know. He says, you don't know it. You think you know it all. You don't know. You don't know how it all plays out. You don't know every situation. You don't know how this truth is, is hitting other people. Paul basically says, if I were to summarize it, hey, you know the truth about idols? That's great but you are not loving or building up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, you don't know squat. It's pointless. The foundation of the community, the foundation of the church, the core of what binds us together and how we relate to one another is love. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in truth. Now, he does say that there's other places. But walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. And I know some of us are already thinking, okay, you said love's more important than truth, but isn't love a truth? Love's the truth. We love the truth. Jesus is the truth. We can't know what love is apart from truth. This doesn't make sense to me. And when we begin to think along those lines, what we're really showing is that we don't know as we ought to know, that we don't get it. And listen, I'm a doctrine guy. I think it's vital and mega important to have right theology. But here's what I had to ask myself this week when studying this passage. Do I get as uncomfortable when I'm not loving a brother or sister in Christ the way I'm called to? 
do I get as uncomfortable as when I'm failing in that area as when I do when I hear bad doctrine? Does hearing bad theology, does that irritate me as much as when I know I'm not loving someone as much as Christ is calling me to do? And I think Paul would look right at me and say, matters you're not knowing as you ought to know. I think most of us are probably a lot more lax in having an unloving heart and then making sure all of our doctrines tidied up. And But what does our doctrine teach, though? When really understood, what is the after effect of Christianity? What is the shockwave of the gospel in the Christian's life? It's love. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, our instruction, other translations say, is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the love of God and the love of Christ for us sinners, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the hub for all that we are and all that we do and how we relate to each other. John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, a new truth, a new doctrine. Okay, okay. A lot of us, oh yeah, great. That you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. John 15, 17, these things I command you, doctrine, I'm giving you, I'm teaching you. Why? So that you will love one another. And John, 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe the name of his son, Jesus Christ, doctrine, believe, and love, and love one another just as he commanded us. Love builds up. Love builds up. Look at verse 3, chapter 8. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Really bizarre turn all of a sudden. He talks to them about you need to know as you ought to know. You don't know. You know, love builds up. And then verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Felt like a weird transition to me. But So why this? Because Paul's gently bringing up what 1 John says also. If anyone says he loves God but does not love his brother, he is a liar. The love of God is not in him. This is what's fundamental to Christianity, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So if we know God, we're loved by God, then love springs out of us. For whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So when we say love, I know when we talk about love and our culture is just different ideas of love because you can say, man, I love the rockets and I love fajitas and I love God and they all sound this odd. Biblical love is not just this emotional flutter that happens. It's really an act of, of love, of putting the good of someone else before you, of sacrifice, of serving. That's love, giving. For God so loved the world, he felt. No. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So we need to relate to one another, not, not less than doctrine, but more. How does love inform our interactions with one another? We ought to be asking ourselves, how do I build up this brother or sister in Christ? And this is a question that the Christians in Corinth are not asking. They're not concerned about how to build each other up. They're concerned about themselves. I know the truth. I'm going to live this way. And everyone else has just got to, you know, have their life. This is my life. I'm living this way. I know the truth. It's fine. And Paul says, that does not work. Look at verse 5. He says in verse 4, yes, you know the truth, an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. Verse 5, for although there may be 
many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, these so-called idols, Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite, all these kinds of false gods. As indeed, there are many gods and many lords. Verse 6, yet for us, what do we know? There is one God, the Father, for whom are all things for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul says, we know the doctrine. We know it. There are no other gods, and idols are nothing. And then Paul gives this amazing, robust, theological roundhouse statement in verses 5 and 6. There's one God, nothing else. Think about how radically that would sound in that culture, and even in ours today. One God, everything else, nothing. One God, the Father who made all things. He's the creator, and what Paul says, and we exist for him. Everyone in this room exists for God. And then he says, and then Jesus, the Lord, and you could lay these parallel statements right on top of each other. He is putting Jesus and the Father right next to each other, saying they are co-equals together, reigning and ruling over the universe. And we exist for Jesus too. The reality of the gospel and the megaton truths of who God is impacts all of life. That's why Paul brings these up. They're not insignificant. They matter. They matter these, these comfort the hurting. They give hope to the crushed. They, they bring assurance to the weak. When taught in love, when not taught in love, they become hurtful. Because look what he says in verse 7. So yes, you know the truths of verse 5 and 6, but verse 7, however, however, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? That idols are nothing. So he says, listen, we know the truth, but there are some Christians in your midst who struggle to know that truth. They know there is no God but God alone. They know that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father but by him. They know they're saved by his cross alone, but they are struggling to eat the meat that's offered to an idol. Because look at what he says, verse 8. I'm sorry, the end of verse 7. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as though it's really offered to an idol. Even though they know an idol is nothing, when they eat that meat that was offered at Zeus's temple, they think they're actually eating it as though it were really offered to Zeus. Their conscience is defiled. How can that be? Somebody probably hearing that going, I thought they knew that there is no God but God alone. How could they struggle to eat meat offered to a statue? It's nothing. It's just meat. How could that be? We know this. We know how that can be. The same, this can be the same way that you know God is sovereign and in control of everything, and yet you still worry. You know that God is sovereign and in control, and everything is planned out, and everything will happen according to his good and gracious will, and yet you still worry and have fear. So what they're struggling with, what you and I struggle with, it's really not that different. Them just like you, just like me, like every Christian, we are still learning what it means to live with Jesus as Lord of all. We know the truth, but we're waiting for it to permeate and to really spread to the edges of all of our life. The group that's struggling in Corinth knows the truth on one level, but they aren't experiencing it yet. And that's Christian growth. Knowing the truth, be it experiencing it in all of life. And the group that has no problem with the meat cannot think they are superior. And the, and the group that has problem with the meat, Paul says, don't dare think you're superior. Because look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. 
we are no worse off if we do not eat. So you're not less of a Christian if you don't eat. And you're no better off if we do. Why does Paul say this? He says it's because he knows all it takes is one opinion and one preference to go sideways, and now all of a sudden you have first Baptist Corinth, second Baptist Corinth. That's all it takes. We are that weak, we're that fickle, and we'll split over. Should we eat meat offered to idols or not? But Paul wants to say, no, 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 this is not the way of Christ. You're not a worse Christian if you eat that meat. Because that's what they would think. And you're not a worse Christian if you don't eat the meat, because that's what they would think. Paul says, food, this doesn't make you better. This doesn't commend you to God because you are righteous in Christ. So anything you do, anything you don't do, doesn't make God go, now we're talking. That's not how it works. So what does he say? Verse nine is major. Look at verse nine. But take care that this right of yours, so you, they have right to eat that meat. Totally fine. You're totally free to eat it. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So they're totally free to eat the meat. It's just food. Paul agrees. But if they're right, their liberty to eat this meat offered to idols becomes a wound, a point of stumbling for another Christian. Paul says it's wrong. Paul's point is that we need to hear is all of us do not live in such a way that you endanger or harm a brother or sister in Christ. And that's obvious to us. Well, duh, I wouldn't do stuff like that. I wouldn't sin and invite another brother or sister to sin with me. That'd be wrong. We know that. But here's what makes it so complicated. Paul is saying, do not do something that you are 100% it is okay for you to do. Do not do that if it's going to hurt your friend, your brother, your sister in Christ. Because if that's the case, it is now 100% not okay to do. That makes it complicated for us. And that takes sacrifice for us. For, I mean, for example, again, in, in Thailand, this is, I, was, I remember being there, being in the grocery store, and along this one aisle, they had these prepackaged offerings to the monks. Just, you grab it and go give it to the monk. It had a bucket, it had some toiletries, it had some food. Now, as a Christian, I know it's just food, toiletries, and a bucket. And I needed some of the toiletries because I'm a poor packer. Like, I could use some of that stuff. I could buy that, and it was a little cheaper than if I bought all that stuff individually. So you could think, I'm buying that. It's a good economic decision. It's got all the toiletries I need, some food, and it's got a bucket. Who doesn't need a bucket? I'm going to buy it. You could buy it and be totally fine. But if you knew that you were there with another believer, I mean, you're there in Thailand, so all the Christians have a Buddhist background. So if you were to buy that, you would be wounding another brother or sister in Christ. So Paul would say, don't even buy it. It's Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this whole passage is about, I don't want to wound my brother or sister. I don't want to give them a stumbling block back into idolatry. Guys, this whole passage, 1 Corinthians 8, other ones we'll see like Romans 14, Galatians 5. This is about doing something that you are free to do and it wounding, stumbling another brother or sister into that very thing that was sin for them. I want to be so clear. I know this passage gets hijacked often. This is not about offending another Christian's preferences or opinions. 
This is not about offending another Christian. So I don't like that. This is about doing something that would cause someone to sin, that you know, that would make them fall into idolatry. And oftentimes people say, well, you know, these, there are gray areas in Christianity. And one of them oftentimes, especially in our, in our area, in the Bible Belt especially, is about alcohol. I'm like, hey, that's a gray area. That's not even true. Alcohol is not even a gray area. First Timothy says, for everything created by God is good. Not gray. Good. And Romans 14, do not for the sake of food Destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean. Can't get more clear. Everything indeed is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything. Paul just blows up the categories. Anything that causes your brother to stumble. And we think stumble would be like, Uh, I went against their opinion. No, that's how a lot of people use this. This is about making them stumble into idolatry, making them stumble into sin. This is not about preferences. This is not about opinions. This is about doing something that you're free to do that would cause someone to be tempted and encouraged to go to idolatry or to go into sin. And look, look at verse 10. Look what Paul says. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, this knowledge that idols are nothing, eating in an idol's temple, He's going to say later, you should not eat at these idols' temples. That, that is a bad idea because you're basically eating with the table, of, uh, table of demons. But that's in chapter 10. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And look what he says. Who are these kinds of people? Verse 7. Who have a former association with idols. So someone who has a former association with an idol, not someone who just says, I don't like that you eat that meat. It's someone who, I have a former association, and that's really tempting me. This is not the same as someone saying, hey, I don't like you eat that meat when it's offered to idols. I don't think it's good. And you would go, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to sin against you. I didn't mean to tempt you towards idolatry. Please forgive me. And they would say, well, I'm not tempted. I just, I don't think it's wise. You know, I don't think it's a good idea to do that. I don't think it's very Christianly. You shouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't want you to do that. That's not what's best. That's not legitimate use of this passage. That's pharisaical bullying at its finest. Verse 7, those who have former association with idols, those who have a history of it. I've had way too many conversations with people who try to hijack this concept and to force people to not partake of a Christian liberty that is free, theirs to do. And it's typically alcohol, especially in our area, which is bizarre to Christians outside the Bible Belt. They can't even believe, like, y'all actually talk about that? And then Christians all around the world, they can't even fathom that that's a problem. They're always like, do you guys read the Bible? I mean, good grief, why is this an issue? Usually say things like, I don't want it to harm my witness. That really didn't bother Jesus very much. This is about not wanting a brother or sister to stumble into sin that they have previous history with. Mike? Joe, for instance, Joe could eat the meat. But since Mike has a history with idolatry and that would tempt him, he wouldn't do it. So Joe says, I'm not going to eat it. And Paul's going to say later in 1 Corinthians, if you're buying meat at the market, just, just buy it. Don't even ask where it's from. If you're at a friend's house, neighbor's house, and they set meat before you, don't ask, is this Zeus meat? Just eat it. <laughs> but he says, if they, if they tell you, hey, I got this from the temple of Zeus. It's up to you whether you eat it or not. So Joe doesn't eat it. 
Joe can drink beer at dinner. But since Mike, his brother in Christ, has a past history of drunkenness, being an alcoholic, Joe refuses. This is how Christianity works. Actually, I mean, I know people who are in their 40s who their parents grew up, you know, you have the prohibition era thinking and all that, all that kind of stuff. And their parents think drinking alcohol is unwise and that's their preference, it's their opinion. They can live that way. But yet they're 40 years old and so they hide their drinking from their parents. Like, you need to grow up. Because really, you're not, this is not, I don't want them to stumble. No, they, I think in a way they need to stumble. They need to be liberated from their Phariseeism and to walk in the power of the gospel. Everything indeed is clean, but we don't want to cause anyone to stumble, anyone to be hurt because of our freedoms. And I've shared a lot of personal stuff about my life, and I, you know, I'll share another way. We, we used to have at the office, at the church office, we used to have this little jar, little bowl, filled with little fun-sized candy bars, little Mr. Good bars, little crackles. You can throw those out, though. Those are terrible. <laughs> little dark chocolate Hershey's, little mini Reese's peanut butter cups. And I noticed a few weeks ago that the bowl was empty. I'm like, man, we all plowed through that really fast. And the next day, it wasn't refilled again. Next day, it wasn't refilled again. So I told Carolyn, I was like, hey, are we going to stock up that bad boy or what? She's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get on it. I'm like, all right, cool. I come up to the office again, and it's still empty. I'm like, why do I come up here? Fill up the candy bar thing, you know? <laughs> but ever since I shared that story about me sneaking candy bars and, like, sinning when I'm trying to eat healthy and, like, you know, just sneaking them at the grocery store behind, you know, everyone, um, Lawson told Carolyn, he's like, I think it'd be wise. I think it'd be best if we just didn't put more candy bars out there. You know, Jeff shared that story. I think it'd be good to not do that. And I, you know, the other, just this week, I came into the office, and it hasn't been filled up in like a month, but that bowl was gone. It's just gone now. It's like Ebenezer now. It's just gone. <laughs> and there was an Amazon box just sitting there, and I knew it was just a, like Amazon box with books or something in it. And I was like, oh, is it a box of chocolates? And I just like made a little joke about it. And then Lawson came into my office later, and he goes, hey, I actually, I told Carolyn, I thought it'd be good just to not, you know, you share that story, and I thought it'd be good just to not. I mean, we're all kind of plowing through it, and I don't want, you know, tempted and stuff. Don't do it. I, I told her, don't stock them back up. And I went, hmm, you're fired. You know, that's good. <laughs> but no, I really told him, like, man, I said, thank you. Like, that was, that was very kind. Like, I, I appreciate that because I didn't need them. And he said, like, I, I, I knew you'd be tempted. I'm like, oh, absolutely, I knew I was tempted. That's the only reason I go to the office is so I can go get those candy bar things. That's, that's this passage at work. He's free to eat all the Mr. Good bars he wants within reason. But because it was going to be tempting for me, and it was totally tempting for me, he gave them up. That's rights laid down. That's the beautiful element of Christianity that I think a lot of the world doesn't see enough of, of us laying our rights down, of us sacrificing for each other to build them up. Like Paul then in verse 13, look at what he says. This is amazing to me. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. That is crazy extreme to me. Give me the kale diet. I'm done. I'm never having meat again. I don't want to cause this brother whom I love. And what you have to remember about this passage, it's very specific those who have former association, this brother, this group in the local church, because a lot of times we start thinking, man, I guess I shouldn't have, you know, I mean, 
I like to have a beer once a week or whatever at home, but I don't want to get one at, at that restaurant because what if someone sees me? Now, that's not how we're to live. You could take that principle and apply it to your entire life. I guess I shouldn't get a new TV because what if, my, what if someone with, you know, with envy sees it? I guess I can't go get Froyo with my kids after church today because what if a glutton sees me driving when I walk out of the Froyo place? I mean, you see like how crazy that would be to live? Really, it's really specific, brothers and sisters in Christ that we know. Because look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And look at what he describes him as, the brother for whom Christ died. He could have just said, your brother. That would have been totally accurate. We would have grabbed the meaning of the sentence. But he says, your brother for whom Christ died. Paul's reminding us who we are. People who've been saved by the death of Jesus. So when you're interacting with a fellow Christian, that brother or sister, that is someone for whom Christ died. Jesus died for them. Jesus gave up his life for them. And Paul says, you won't give up eating meat? Jesus died for them, giving them a new life, paying for all their sins, just like he did for you. And he rose again from the dead. And now you're going to hurt them. Now you're going to treat them as irrelevant. Now you're going to be inconsiderate towards them. And now you're actually going to help them in temptation. And Paul says, when you do that, you don't just sin against them. You sin against Christ. This is why injuring each other, counting each other insignificant, not looking to each other's interests is way, way against the way of the gospel. This is how we should view each other. Paul is introducing us to a new way to view each other. That's a brother or sister for whom Christ died. So that one brother, that one sister in Christ who you just cannot get along with, they just get under your skin and you look at them and you're just like, oh, they just irritate me. They just annoy me. Here's what you need to do. You need to repent of that. And two, you look at them and think, that is someone for whom Jesus died. Even today, I know there's a lot of community groups we have that meet today. You're going to see them, and they're over there pouring their drink. And the way they pour their drink even annoys you. <laughs> you look at them and you go, that's someone for whom Christ died. Jesus died for them. I think if you are a Christian, I think what will occur next in your heart is, I want to love them. I really want to care for them. How do I love them in the way of Christ? And it'll change your life. When we remember the cross of Christ for us and for our brothers and sisters, if love doesn't swell up from those drops of blood, we do not know as we ought to know. Knowing the love of Christ and his cross and his resurrection for our sins and giving us new life changes everything about us. And maybe you need to believe it today. Maybe you need to believe it for the first time. And I, I would bet that most of us need to re-believe it again. And it'll change the way we treat each other. We relate to each other, not just in frozen sentences and propositional statements on paper, but in the resurrected life of Jesus and his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We live in his way of love. We live in his life. We live together and the way of Christ. This is, this is love. Let's go after the way of Christ together. Christ be praised. Let me pray. 
If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to, to come forward. And Lord Jesus, now would you help us to even bring to mind in ways that we might be living that are wounding a brother or sister in Christ. And we, we have a vague idea of it. We, we know it. Ways that we talk, things that we have liberty to enjoy, that we're being inconsiderate. Lord, would you bring those to mind now so that we could begin the process of confession and repentance and that we could begin to seek to build up our brothers and sisters. Jesus, we want you to be made much of in our church and in our community and in our relationships. You have commanded us and invited us to love one another. And by the way that we do that, people will know that we are your disciples. So Jesus, would you create a church that is serious about loving one another? Help us now. We can only do it by your spirit. So would you fill us with your spirit? and the fruits of love, joy, and peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do that now for us, Lord. And it's for your glory and in your name that we ask. Amen.